right. Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. It's always exciting to be together. Uh, Happy Father's Day to our fathers in the room. What a special uh, day today is. And if you're here and uh, you got a ticket uh, on your way in, we do a Father's Day raffle. Uh, I always say this is my favorite thing that we do because I like to eat. And anytime you give away a certificate, a gift certificate, uh, for meat from the local meat market, uh, it's a great Father's Day to me. So uh, if you have your ticket, if you got one on the way in, will you get it out? Now is your lucky chance to uh, win this. I did not put my name in it, though I will split it with whoever wins this if you will want to. Um, the ticket number for the winner is 377. That's everybody, right? Um, 068. 068. We got a winner. Anybody? No, no, no. You can stop by over there. I just needed to know who you were so we could split it. Uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, anyway, no, no. Happy Father's Day to everybody. Uh, this has been an exciting weekend uh, for a number of reasons. We've just concluded our family weekend. So if you uh, we're here. Thank you for that. We've, uh, we did our vacation Bible school Friday and Saturday, and we kind of uh, grouped that together with a parenting conference. And so it's been an incredible time uh, for our families this weekend and concluding it with Father's Day uh, is just a cherry on top with that. And so today we're going to be continuing on in our series, uh, uh, Knowing God, where we've been walking through uh, the Bible. If you've been here, we've been in this series for quite a while now. We've worked all the way from Genesis to Today we'll be in the book of 2 Kings. If y'all want to open up to 2 Kings, uh, it should be in the Old Testament. And so we've worked our way all the way to 2 Kings. Last week we talked about David, King David. Uh, just to kind of catch you up in the story, uh, King David would eventually die and then the throne would go to his son Solomon. Uh, and so Solomon would rule and build a temple. Uh, the kingdom would divide and, into two, a southern and northern kingdom, and more kings would kind of raise up in each of the southern and northern kingdoms. Most of those kings would be corrupt. Uh, but during that time, what would happen is God would raise up to prophets that would minister during this period of time in which you move into the, the prophet section of the Bible where you see different names. But two of the prophets and kings that I want to draw your attention to uh, are Elijah. Many of you have probably heard of Elijah with a J. Uh, and then today we'll be talking about Elisha with an SH on that in 2 Kings chapter 5. And so I want to introduce to you a story that you may have heard or maybe you haven't. The 9 a.m. service a lot had not. How many of you guys have heard of a guy by the name of Naaman, N-A-A-M-A-N, Naaman. Okay, so a couple people. Uh, for most of you guys, hopefully this will be a new story. And I love new stories because uh, I can kind of start from scratch and not have to cover up any other information that you may have about it. And so Naaman, this may be one of the, the greatest uh, most secret stories in the entire Bible. It's such an awesome thing, and I think we can learn from it in a number of ways this morning. So 2 Kings chapter 5, let me pray for us, and then we will uh, jump right in. So let's pray together. Father, again, we love you. Uh, God, we're here to worship you. Uh, Father, what, what a joyous uh, time to celebrate you. Uh, God, what an incredible time to open your word. And Father, we believe your word is powerful. Uh, God, we believe it's living and active. God, we believe that through the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, you use it in our lives, God, and it's profitable, Lord, for, for rebuking, for teaching, for correcting and training. So, Father, we uh, trust that this morning, God, as we open your word, we need your help. God, we ask that you would illuminate things in our lives uh, that need to change. God, we ask that you would show us more of who you are so that we can know you more deeply. And, God, we pray that you would show us how much we need Jesus and how great of a Savior that he is. So, Father, be with us this morning. We need your help. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Second Kings chapter five, starting in verse one, it says, now Naaman uh, was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. Now that should catch your attention because Aram or Syria is not Israel, right? So this is a foreign land and this is a foreign general named Naaman. It says he was a great man in the sight of his master and he was highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy, right? So Naaman's claim to fame is that he has leprosy, so to speak. Verse two, 
Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. This is the second character we get in the story, a young girl from Israel. And there may not be a greater character in any story in the Bible uh, than, than this young girl. We're going to learn from her this morning. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master Naaman would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosies. She's talking about Elisha. Verse four, Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel said. By all means, go, the king of Syria replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Sounds like he packed up everything he had, which is a lot of money, by the way, um, and millions of dollars in today's terms he took with him to buy this healing from leprosy. Now, another thing that you may want to know is that Syria and Israel were enemies of one another. They didn't like each other. There had been constant fighting back and forth with them. So let's see how the king of Israel replies when they get there. Uh, so the letter that he took to the king of Israel, verse six read with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman so that you may uh, cure him of, of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel or fight with me. So the king of Israel saw it as this is, this can't be what it seems like. Why would they ask us for help? We're enemies. Maybe he's trying to kind of get in and, and, and start a fight with us in some sort of way. The motives can't just be that. So even the king of Israel uh, kind of misread what was going on in the situation. So when, the, when Elisha, enter prophet Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the, man, have, have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And so again, we see this picture of Naaman coming with his horse and buggy, everything he's got, his whole clan posse, so to speak. And he gets to Elisha's house and Elisha doesn't even come out. He sends a messenger out to tell him, Hey, go wash in the river seven times. Naaman takes offense at that because he's kind of a big deal in Syria, but in Elisha's not, you know, he don't have the same ratings as the people of Syria. And so he don't want to get near him. So he basically says, Hey, why don't you go and wash seven times in the Jordan river? Listen, verse 11, but Naaman went away angry and said, I thought, that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. I don't know how much you know about the Jordan River other than Jesus was baptized in it, but the Jordan River is not like the Altamaha. It's, it's kind of like a, it's a glorified ditch, so to speak, more like the Ahupi uh, River when it runs through Tattnall to Tombs County. It's very small. And so if you, he wasn't impressed by the Jordan River that he was told to go into. He was like, there's rivers that are better back home where I'm from. Why wouldn't I go in those? But he didn't understand it wasn't about the river. It was about the God of Israel uh, that was his territory was the Jordan River. So it says he turned and he went off in a rage. Verse 13, Naaman's servant, though, persuaded him. He said, we went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do that something great, wouldn't you have just done it? How much more then when he tells you to wash and be cleansed? So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became, he became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. And he stood before him and said, listen to the message that Naaman got from the healing. Listen, now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. So he doesn't say, now I know there's a great prophet named Elisha. 
Because Elisha's job is not to point to Elisha, it's to point to God. And so when Naaman comes out of the river, what he knows is that this God that they've been talking about in Israel is a real God and he has real power to deliver people in in many ways. So please accept a gift from your servant. So he brings and he wants to give a gift because of what has been done. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. And so if you keep on reading the story, there's a lot more interesting stuff. I don't have time uh, for that this morning. We'll talk about a little bit, but I want you to see three things in this story of Naaman. That's such an incredible thing. The first is this. I want you to see a great man with a great need. I want you to, I want us to learn from Naaman. Many of us may say, well, I don't have leprosy, but I think we can learn from more uh, than that in the life of Naaman. Secondly, I want you to learn from this little girl. I'm going to call her a great evangelist, a great evangelist. And then number three, I want you to see a great transformation. Naaman came to get healed of leprosy, but he left with a changed heart and he left as a Christian and a believer in the God of Israel. So let's learn from these. One, a great man with a great need. Again, verse one, now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Syria. It says he was a great man in the light of his master. And he was highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So by the world's standards, we see that Naaman was a great man. He was a stud military leader. The country loved him. He was a hero. He was courageous. He was victorious. God had given him favor to win many, many victories. Uh, He was the right hand to the king of Syria. He had access to literally walk into the room with the king of Syria and say, hey, will you write me a letter to go here? So we see this guy was a big deal. He was royalty. He was a servant of the king. He was a hero among the people. Everybody loved him. He had this great repute. He was blessed by God. The Lord had given victory as a general in the army, but he was successful. We see by the amount of money that he brought, he was wealthy. He was famous. He was a hero in Syria. And I want you to write something down and note this, that sometimes when we're great in the eyes of the world, one of the things that it does, and this is devastating, is it blinds us to our need for God. And in Naaman's life, I think one of the things that he, saw, he, he was experiencing through all of this success that he had was that he never really needed God. But things had changed because now he had been diagnosed with leprosy, which is letter B. Naaman had a great physical need. So he was a great man, but he also had a great physical need. He had leprosy and leprosy was a big deal. This was something that he couldn't fix. And as a military general who could feed and defeat and win any battle, he could not defeat this battle with leprosy. It's a terrible disease. Uh, They literally called it like the walking dead was your nickname if you had leprosy. I want you to read and listen to what some commentators say about it just to give you a picture of how bad this disease actually is. Leprosy was the most feared disease in the entire world. It began as this small, white, powdery patch of skin, like a rash, that would soon spread all over your body. And wherever it spread, the nerve endings in your skin would die, and boils would break out all over your body, leaving these gaping wounds of raw flesh. Eventually, body parts fell off. Your facial features lost shape and became grotesque. Essentially, you turned into a character on The Walking Dead. And in those days, there was no cure. Leprosy had an 100% death rate, and it was regarded to be highly contagious. So the moment one of these spots was discovered on you, you were immediately banished, where you'd spend the next 10 to 20 years in isolation until you died. So you can imagine the effect that leprosy would have had on the life of Naaman, how devastating it would have been, how humbling it would have been, how sobering, how helpless he must have felt. But to have this terminal disease, he was literally walking to his deathbed. He was alive. But if you've ever seen any kind of sickness where you're pretty much dead, but you still are breathing, that's kind of the condition. It's such a sad thing. He was isolated. He was outcasted from the entire society. You can picture this mighty Naaman that had all of these good things, great soldier, famous, money, had all of these things. 
But then he discovers this spot of death on his skin. Naaman's life had gone great up until this point. He had a good life. People loved him. He was successful. He had everything the world had to offer except now he had a terminal sickness. This was likely the only situation that Naaman had ever faced in his entire life that he hadn't been able to control, to fix, or to defeat himself. And that is, there's nothing more humbling than when you face a scenario where you have no control to fix it. But God is up to something. When it came to this physical condition in Naaman's eyes of, of leprosy, he was helpless. He couldn't fix it and the world and nobody around him could cure it. But as you read this story, you begin to see that God is up to something. God is clearly at work. He's doing something. And I want you to write down this statement of what God is doing. Write this down. God is sovereignly using physical suffering as a means of drawing Naaman to himself spiritually. God is sovereignly, meaning that God is in full control of all things, and he's using a bad thing, physical suffering, and he's using it as a, as a means to draw Naaman to himself spiritually. He's revealing to Naaman how great of a need that he has for God. Because remember, up until this point, Naaman has never even needed God because he's been so successful, so rich. Everything has gone so well. It's not that he couldn't have turned to God, but God was started pursuing him. And when Naaman was diagnosed with this leprosy, God began to use it to draw him to himself. Because letter C, ultimately Naaman had a great spiritual need. He wasn't just a great man. He didn't just have a great physical need, but God knew his greatest need was his spiritual need. Although leprosy was a physical condition, it was also an incredible picture of Naaman's spiritual condition. We see in the New Testament, Jesus over and over again compares spiritual lostness and blindness and, and the condition of sin to leprosy because there's so many similarities. And so when you even think about our condition spiritually, uh, when we're lost, it, it, the best way to think about it in a lot of ways is the physical condition of leprosy. Sin is a terminal illness. It, it will lead to death. It isolates us from God. There's so many characteristics. But Naaman was a great man. He had done a lot of great things, but God knew he was a lost man. And it doesn't matter how great of things we do in this world. At the end of it all, what matters is our relationship with God. Do we have God? You can gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. It's, it's not worth it. Jesus would tell us. God was using this leprosy. He was using this little servant girl that we don't even get her name. And he was using Elisha to reveal that to Naaman. The story reveals to us a few things early about Naaman. If you read it, you can pick up on these things, specifically uh, when we see his sin in the way that he responds to Elisha. A couple things we see that, that Naaman was prideful. Naaman was prideful. He was about himself. He was arrogant. He was entitled. He had become self-righteous and, and he, he was angry when things didn't go the way that he thought they should go. He thinks that he should roll into Israel and the prophet Elijah should roll out the red carpet for him. He thinks that if he comes with money and this posse of people that they're just going to roll out the red carpet and that he can buy God and that God's impressed with his reputation and what he's done and who he is in Syria. But the God of the Bible doesn't work that way. He's not impressed by us. He's not impressed by how much money we have. He's not impressed by our reputation. He's not impressed by us. He owns everything. He controls everything. Who are we in the eyes of God? But he loves Naaman. And because he loves Naaman, he begins to reveal himself to him. On top of that, we see that Naaman was blind to his sin. And this is a huge warning that we need to understand that what sin does in our life is it blinds us. Naaman was prideful and arrogant, entitled, self-righteous, and he couldn't even see it. He didn't even know it. He, he, he had no idea that that's what's going on. And this is exactly what sin does. And the biggest issue facing our society and culture and even every person in this room today is that you would be so blind to your sin and you would be so blind to the spiritual condition of sin that you would think that you didn't need God. 
that you would think because you had money and you had worldly success and you had a great life on this world that somehow it outweighed the spiritual condition that you and I are both in and you are wrong. You are wrong. And the clear message of the gospel is that we need God. We need God no matter who we are, no matter how big and bad we think we are. Naaman needed God. We need God. Because here's the thing. Naaman's story is our story. I want you to write this down. God had to humble Naaman before he could heal Naaman. God had to humble Naaman before he could heal Naaman. Naaman's story is our story. We are lost. The Bible says we're dead in our sin. We're spiritual lepers. We're isolated from our creator God. We have a terminal sickness called sin and we need God. We need to be healed. We need to be reconciled to the creator of the universe. We need a great physician. What, the, what leprosy was to Naaman physically, sin is to us spiritually. And if we do not recognize that we are sick, then we will never realize our need for God. And we will be blind the same way he is blind. Before we can be healed spiritually, we must be humbled to the point where we realize when it comes to our condition of sin, we are helpless. Religious can't, religion can't fix me and you. Nothing in the world can fix me and you. Only Christ can come and fix the condition of sin that you and I are in. It's a heart issue. And maybe you're in this room today and you say, and you're lost in your goodness. Maybe a lot like Naaman. You've done a lot of good things. You, you consider yourself a good person. But here's the thing. The Bible's very clear to us. There's no good person there's no good people, even in the world's eyes, if you're good, you've, fought, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in the face of God, you need a rescuer, you need a savior the same way Naaman did. Maybe you're in the room today and you're lost in your badness. You'd say, Billy, I've done some bad things in my life, things that I don't know that God could ever forgive me of. Well, we saw last week adultery, murder, God forgave David. God, it, God's grace is bigger than whatever sin you come into this room. And it doesn't really matter if you're lost in your goodness or lost in your badness. We both need Christ equally. We need Christ equally. Maybe today you're in a situation where you're walking through some difficult things, maybe a lot like Naaman. It's one of the only situations you've ever been in where you feel like you can't fix it. Have you ever been there in a situation where no matter what you do or try to do, there's no answer? It creates this dependency. It creates this outward look. Who can help me? Who will I look to? And a lot of times what God's doing in these situations is he's using this situation to point us to the hills, to look for the help that can only come from God and to draw us into a relationship with God. Maybe you're walking through some of these difficult things and they're out of your control. You can't fix them. You can't defeat them on your own. Well, I tell you, God has sent me today and he sent the word of God, the story of Naaman to show you that you have a loving father in heaven that is screaming down at you. Look to me, look to me, I can help you. How do I know that? Matthew chapter 8, you don't have to turn there, I'll tell you a story. Jesus encounters a leper on a mountaintop and large crowds were following him. Verse 2, it says, a man with leprosy came and he knelt before Jesus. He humbled himself and knelt before Jesus. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Listen, you don't touch lepers, it's contagious. If you touch a leper, you get leprosy. Jesus reached out and touched the man. He wasn't scared of his sin. He wasn't scared of his sickness. He wasn't scared of anything this man brought to the table. And listen to what he said. I am willing, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. This is Jesus. This is the God that we serve. And for many of us today, we're in this room and this message is for you. You thought things have gone good in your life. Everything's working out the way you want them to go. But listen, something's going to go wrong at some point. And it's by God's grace that maybe something does go wrong so that you begin to need God. But I can tell you, why not get it out of the way before that? Why not begin to look to God and understand that you need God more today than any day you've ever needed him in your life? 
and humble yourself before God as a leper because God, throughout the New Testament, Jesus over and over again, he uses this physical condition of leprosy to explain who we are spiritually. And today, my prayer is that some of us would fall to our knees and say, God, I need you. I need you because we live in a culture that wants you to think you don't need God. But it's wrong and it's a lie and it's a tactic of the enemy to keep you from the one thing that you were created, which is a relationship with God, dependency on God. Secondly, we see a great evangelist. One of the most incredible things of this story is this little servant girl. I love her so much. Verse 2 says, now the bands of raiders from Syria had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. Notice they had taken her captive. Most likely they had killed her family and taken her captive as some sort of servant or slave. And it says the young girl was from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. And then she said to her mistress, if only Naaman, my master, would see that the prophet, would see the prophet who is in Samaria, talking about Elisha, he would cure him of his leprosy. And we, this makes us ask ourselves a question. If you had been kidnapped, your whole family had been killed by a group of people and they had taken you back in as a servant, would you be telling them about something that could heal them? It's a challenge in this passage of, of even in this situation, even in a bad situation where she could be filled with bitterness and unforgiveness. She sees herself as an ambassador of God. And that though this is, it's almost like the story of Joseph. What they intended for evil, God turned it around and used it for good. Verse five, by all means, the king of Aram replied, I'll send a letter, go to the king of Israel. The literal hero of this story is the slave girl. You realize that? The young girl is an absolute stud. And we don't even know her name. And she loves it that way probably. Because it's not about her. Her life is not about her. She's not living for her. She's living for the God of Israel that she points Naaman to. What an incredible picture and example for us. She was kidnapped. She was taken captive as a slave. Most likely her parents and family were killed in that raid. Living as a servant girl in a foreign land with a people that killed her family. This makes us realize a truth. Sometimes in the midst of our most difficult situations... God is working in profound ways. Sometimes in a situation that we would sit back and just waller in self-pity and think, how could this happen? How could I be in this situation? How could this happen to me where bitterness and unforgiveness is all over the place? We see in this story that God is working in profound ways. God's using this girl to accomplish his purposes, to literally take the gospel of Jesus Christ where it is not known. No, there's no way she knew that in that situation. All she knew was that I was going to be faithful and obedient and I was going to be God and I was going to follow God wherever I was, good, bad, or ugly. How would Naaman have ever heard of the great prophet Elisha that would point him to God, the God of the Bible, if it wasn't for this young girl? How would the gospel have gotten to Syria and began to work in a mighty way if it wasn't for this young girl? We see how God's plan works here. God uses ordinary human beings like this little girl, like you, like me, to testify of God's saving power. How many of you know this? God's plan for his church, God's plan for the mission of his church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth is not on the backs of a couple superstar preachers. It's on the backs of ordinary believers like you and I that go out into the world and live on mission, that live with everyday gospel intentionality wherever we are. This is God's plan to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So let's learn from this girl. I want to give you four characteristics of a great evangelist. You say, Billy, I'm not an evangelist. I don't talk about God. I come to church. Ain't that enough? No, it's not. To follow Jesus is to fish for men. Much less, I'd rather you come, I'd rather you go fish for men than come to church. But this, the church is about equipping you to fish for men. That's what we're here to do. We can't turn it into a consumer service. It's about equipping us. So let's be equipped. Four characteristics of a great evangelist. Letter A, she was aware of Naaman's condition. 
This is huge. Awareness. Are you aware of lostness around you? Are you aware of the lostness around you? Listen, there's four billion people in this world that do not have access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That do not even have access, not even one person in that country, less than 2% Christian that has a Bible in their language that can go to them and tell them about Jesus. In the county of Tombs, where you and I both reside, maybe you're in the surrounding county, but you can do the math in your county. There's about 30,000 people in this county. Most likely, I would say about 20% of the people that live in this county are, 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 are in and growing in a relationship with God. So you do the math. That means eight of the 10 people that you and I encounter every day outside of the walls of this church do not have a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Does that matter? Are we aware of that? Are we aware of the lostness around us? Do you ever think about people's spiritual condition? The eight out of a 10 people that you come into contact with every day will die and go to hell apart from someone sharing with them about the good news of Jesus Christ. That should bother us. It should bother us. We got to be aware of the lostness around us. The person at work beside you, the family that your kids go to school with, the waitress at the restaurant that you frequent every day. Are you aware? Secondly, she was concerned with Naaman's welfare. Not only aware, but concerned. This is even bigger. She was concerned for Naaman's welfare. She had every reason to be mad, to be angry, to be wallowing in self-pity. But she recognized that God had sent her to Syria for a reason, and that reason was to be Christ in a place where there was no Christ. I want you to write this down. What we are concerned about compels us. What we are concerned about compels us. What are you concerned about? Do you think about the people in your life that don't know Christ? If you're concerned, then you will be compelled to take the gospel to them, which is the third thing. She was confident in God's ability to heal. She was confident. Not only was she aware, not only was she concerned, but she was confident in God's ability to heal. How would the way you go about reaching people and telling people about Jesus change if you were confident that God could and would heal the people that you're talking to? That he could do something about their spiritual condition and not could, but would do something about their spiritual condition. Uh, It it reminds me of the story in Mark chapter 2 that I preached a few weeks ago. If you were here, you all remember the story where the guys cut the roof off of the the place and lowered their friend down to be saved. How many of you guys have heard that story? Well, you got these friends. I call them the rednecks because only a redneck would cut off a roof of a house and lower somebody down in it. And and they got this friend that's paralyzed. He's a paralytic and they, they love him. They're concerned about him. They're aware of his physical condition. Maybe they were aware of his lostness. And they want him to get to Jesus because they realize if they can get this guy in front of Jesus, he'll walk and hopefully God will save him. And so they get to this place and they're like, hey, Jesus, the crowd's full. Uh, We're we're done. We're turning people away. We can't, it's standing room only. We can't get there. You can imagine Joe and Larry or whatever uh, redneck name you can think of. If your name's Joe or Larry, just relax. Um, Hey, I got a ladder. And Larry says, well, I got a hacksaw. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yep. And so they get on the roof and you start hearing a hacksaw and a sledgehammer and all this stuff and dust starts falling in and Larry and Joe drop them down and lower him in front of Jesus. And Jesus heals the man, saves the guy, gets up, walks, will never be the same. They were confident that God could heal him. How, how would your confidence in getting somebody to Jesus? This is why I love the Great Commission. God, Jesus, literally last words, therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. When somebody gets baptized, that means that that person has gotten to Jesus. Jesus has gotten to them. They've made a profession of faith and they want everybody to know. That means as a disciple that wants to make other disciples, I got to do whatever it takes to get somebody to Jesus because I know if I can get them to Jesus, that Jesus will take care of the rest. 
It changes everything as an evangelist when we're confident that God will and can heal somebody. And then lastly, we see that she spoke up. She spoke up. She didn't just sit there with a message that could change somebody's life. She spoke up. It reminds me of Paul in Romans 10. He says, how then can they call on the name of Jesus if they, that they, or how can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Never underestimate the power of words. The power of words. Never think that God can't use you exactly where you are. He can and he intends to do so. And if you're not being used by God wherever you are, you're walking in disobedience. You're walking in disobedience. Point people to Jesus within the ordinary rhythms of your work week. Most people think you got to get on a mission trip to go share the gospel with somebody. The people in other countries, when we show up and we tell them the church doesn't really evangelize and we can learn from them are laughing at us like, why do you come 2,000 miles away to share the gospel when you can share the gospel right where you are? It's funny to them that we have this message of hope, this message that means so much to us, but we're not sharing it with people around us. This is the legacy of this little girl. She is an evangelist. And today, what this may look like in our lives is for some of us, it may be having a conversation, just telling somebody what God is doing in your life, right where you are. Maybe at the ball field. Maybe, maybe at work. Maybe it's, it's giving a, a book, a Bible study that you're walking through. Somebody in your life just say, hey, let's read this together. Maybe for you, it's saying, hey, I've been going to this church. I'd love for you to come with me and we can, I'll take you to lunch after and we'll talk about it. Maybe it's inviting somebody to a small group that you go to. Maybe it's uh, praying for somebody who's walking through a difficult situation. Are you looking to be used by God wherever you are? Are you living every day with awareness of lost people around you, being concerned about their lostness, confidence that God can do something about it? and a willingness to speak. Are you an evangelist? Because that's what God has called each of us to be. Follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you a fisher of men. Are you fishing? Are you fishing for men? And then the third thing we see in this passage is a great transformation. This is probably my favorite part. I love it. Naaman comes to Elisha just wanting to be healed of leprosy. He leaves a born-again Christian. He leaves as a follower of Jesus, forsaking everything he's ever known to follow this God that had deliver him, delivered him so greatly. Listen to verse 7. I'll read the story again. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore the robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send me someone to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent, a, sent him a message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hands over, over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of the Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. But don't you just see the Lord working in his heart? He's mad because it's not, he wants to be healed, but he wants to be healed on his terms. And God don't work that way. God says, come to me. I'll do the work. All you do is bring your sin. You ain't got to bring everything else. I don't need your posse. I don't need your money. I don't need whatever you got. All I need is you and an openness to what I can do in your life. Naaman's servants persuaded him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more then when he tells you to wash and be cleansed, should you do that? So finally he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. Can't you just see him dipping? One. Two, three, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? This river's mud anyway. This ain't even real water. And Elisha's like, just wait. 
just wait. And he dips the seventh time. And it says his flesh was restored and he became clean like a young boy. Some of us need to be clean like a young boy, right? You say your skin's wrinkled, you need new skin. Uh, this is what he did. He came out. Can't you imagine him looking like, golly, I was about to die. Now I've been cleansed and I, I look like this. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and listen to what he said. Did he, did he, did he talk about how great the river was? Did he talk about how great the prophet Elijah was? No, he comes back and he says, now I know that there is no God in all of the world except in Israel. This is God's plan. He wants to spread his fame, that he is the only real God, that he's the only God that can save and he wants to do it to the ends of the earth and he wants to use whatever means he needs to to get that message. He says, so please accept a gift from my servant. But Elisha answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. So we see after washing in the Jordan, Naaman's skin is transformed. He's healed instantly and he's healed fully. And the miracle wasn't uh, due to any magical powers that the Jordan River holds. His transformation can only be attributed to who he attributes it to, the grace and the power of the God of Israel. It's so important to understand what he says in verse 15 when he comes back and he says, now I know that there's only one God, the God of Israel. Because in that, Naaman, Naaman's uh, skin wasn't the only thing that was changed. What was changed in that moment is his life, his mind, his heart was changed. Naaman then confesses Yahweh alone as God. He calls himself a servant of Elisha. Finally, he wants to give an offering as a sign of his love and loyalty. That's quite a shift from his initial reaction. He was a God doubter. Now he is a God believer. And there's even more evidence of his transformation. If you keep reading on in that passage, uh, you'll see him kind of have a weird conversation about giving him a pardon to go back home into a temple where he works, uh, but to know, hey, I may go in this temple, but I want you to know I'm not worshiping that God. The only God that I'm worshiping is exclusively the God of the Bible. We see a real conversion happen that involves uh, Naaman turning from his idols and living for this God of the Bible exclusively. So what I want to tell you, three evidences of genuine transformation. I think we can learn from this. I think we can learn that when we have a genuine saving experience with God, some of the same things that happened in the life of Naaman will happen to us. The same spirit that saves us is the same spirit that saves Naaman. So let's ask ourselves, are these evidences true in my life? Three evidences of genuine transformation. Number one, letter A, a new direction. A new direction. A new direction. The Bible teaches if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You can almost think of it as a new direction. Before we meet Christ, we're living for ourselves. Everything's about us. Fame, success, money, reputation, whatever I want to do, that's what I'm going to do. When we meet Christ, we realize we need to be saved. We realize that we're created by God for God to live for him. The process is called repentance. We turn, we forsake our idols, whatever's driving our life, and we turn back to God and we begin to live for him. God, I want to be who you've called me to be. God, I want to live for your purposes. And listen, there is nothing more clear in the life of someone who genuinely gets saved than that proof. I don't want to live for myself anymore. Nothing is about them. It doesn't mean they don't struggle. But when you meet Christ and you meet him truly, things change. Secondly, we get a new identity. New identity. He's not a leper anymore. This is why I believe Jesus uses this story so much. It's because when a leper is healed, everything changes. Everything. Think about it. They would have been uh, literally sent out into the woods, isolated. So when they're healed from leprosy, they get the opportunity to come back in to life. They would have been known as a leper. Stay away from them. They're cursed by God. And when they're healed now, they get to participate in the work of God. They get to be a part of God's family. Everything would have changed. This is what happens when we're saved. God gives us a new identity. 
We're no longer uh, worshiping Satan and living for the ways of the world. And we're no longer a sinner anymore. God changes our name to saint. He gives us a new identity. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, a new identity. We're no longer defined by what people think about us. We're defined by God and what God thinks about us. And through Christ, God says we're blameless. We're holy. We're justified. God has nothing against us. We're a child of God. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're a temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you and me. It's a new identity. You're no longer who you used to be. The old is gone and the new has come. That's what I love about this story. Naaman came looking for a healing and he left a new person, literally a new person. And then thirdly, he got new desires. We see him start to be sensitive to sin. Hey God, you know this idolatry where I go to this other temple? I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to worship the God of the Bible exclusively. These desires for sin and to live for ourselves now they're no longer as attractive as they used to be because we've met a greater attraction. The problem for some of us in this room is not that the power of sin in our life is too big. It's that our love for God is too small. When we meet God and realize who he is and what he's done for us and that he created us and that he wants to live in and through us, how could we go back to living for worthless sin and doing the things that literally have no value whatsoever? C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, uh, when we meet Christ, he says, it's like we're introduced to a, to, to, a, to a holiday by the sea, to a beachfront property that's just the most beautiful creation of all of God. He says to turn back from that would be like going back to the slums of India and playing with literally mud pies, which is just human crap, just playing in that instead of being with God on a holiday by the sea. The best way I know how to explain it is you, every person in this room, you're not created for yourself. The lie that you believe is that this life is about you. And listen, it is a attractive lie. And you can live in it, but at some point in your life, you're going to get to a point and think, man, like this cannot be all that this is. And God begins to work in your life the same way he's doing with Naaman. He begins to draw you to himself, maybe through suffering, maybe through a difficult situation, maybe through a message like this today. He begins to show you that you were made for more, that you were created by God for God. And you were created to live for God, to be an image bearer, to be used by God to find joy and satisfaction and fulfillment, not in this world, but in the God of this world. And that you have a purpose in life. And that purpose is bigger than what you're living for right now. And this is exactly what he showed Naaman. And Naaman left in an incredible way. He left as a new person. And that same opportunity is available for us. He became a sacrificial servant. Listen, when we meet Christ, saved people serve people, period. We can't be served by the God of the universe in the way that we were and be transformed by him and not become like him. Listen, he became radically generous. Listen, he, he realized what Elisha had done for him and given him the greatest gift of his entire life and what God had given him in salvation. And he became a giver. He wasn't living for his own possessions anymore. He said, hey, take everything I got. Here it is. I want to be used by God. Leverage this for the purposes of God. So here's my question today for you. Are these evidences real in your life? When you look at this idea of a new direction, has there ever been a moment where you stopped living for yourself because of an experience with God and because of knowledge and seeing of the grace of God, have you turned from living for yourself and turn to God? Have you realized your new identity? Have you been transformed? Has your desires changed? This is how the Bible explains salvation. This isn't religion. This isn't praying a prayer at an altar and nothing being different. This is Ezekiel 36, new covenant salvation. When you come down and you repent and you're honest about your sin, you're honest about your need for God and that God's the only person that can heal you, you lay your life before him. The Bible says that God will give you a new heart and he'll put a new spirit in you and that it will lead you to do the things of God. And the things of God will change from I have to do this to I get to do this. 
And that's the sign of genuine transformation. I'm not saying that it doesn't require discipline, but what I'm saying is that the things of God begin to be joyful to us. Listen, my biggest fear for every person in this room is that the things of God would be begrudging to you. They would be something that you have to do. It'd be another Sunday that you had to go to church to just go through the motions of Christianity. Listen, that's not worth it. That's the most miserable thing you could ever do with your life. God has something different. God has something different. He wants to do a work in your heart. So right where you're at, I want you to bow your head. I don't know, I don't know where you're at this morning, but I know this is a powerful story. I don't know the, if, if, if the story of, of Naaman and who he is is speaking to your heart. Maybe you're in here and, you, and you're like Naaman. Man, you, you, you've lived a good life. You got a good repute, but you've never really needed God. And maybe today God's trying to humble you. Maybe God's trying to show you all that doesn't matter. What matters is your heart before God. Maybe for some of us, it's the challenge of the servant girl. We've fallen into the, to the lie and, and just began to not care about lost people around us. We began to just fill our life with a holy huddle of people and not even think about the people that are dying and going to hell around us. Maybe today God's giving you a nudge. Have the conversation. Have the conversation. Or maybe today you're here and you'd say, Billy, that's, I've never been transformed by the gospel. I've never had the experience that Naaman had. I've never walked away a new person. And you say this morning, that's what I want. I want God to change my heart. I want him to change my life. That's anybody in the room right now. I want to ask you to raise your hand. I want to pray for you. You say, Billy, that's me this morning. I need God to change me. I realize I can't do it on my own and I want to be saved. Raise it high. Anybody in here, you say, Billy, that's me. That's me. So Father, that's our prayer this morning. God, would you do a work in our hearts? God, your word never comes back void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which you intended. So Lord, I pray this morning, you'd be doing work in hearts of people all across this room, including mine. And God, that we would begin to step into who you've called us to be. Father, I love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Would you stand and sing one last song with us?